it's Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to another edition of the Food Institute podcast. We've got an awesome episode for you today. We have John Church, who's a managing director and head of the Food and Beverage Unit at HSBC Bank USA. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. We'll talk about inflation. We'll talk about global trade disruptions. We'll talk about food service and retail. And we'll talk about health and wellness, to name just a few. But before we get started, I do want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of today's episode, and that's HSBC Bank. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to learn a little bit more about them. So with that all out of the way, we welcome John Church to the show. John, how are you? Doing well, Chris. Thanks for asking. And you? I'm doing pretty well, I got to say. You know, it's the start of spring, it seems, up here in New Jersey. <laughs> so it's always pretty nice, you know, when the winter starts to fade away a little bit. Agreed. So I know that we have a lot of ground to cover today and you have an extensive background, but I'd like for you to try to give a little bit of a background on yourself and also with your role with HSBC, just for our listeners who might not be aware of your you know, career history and everything. So I was hoping you can kind of open with that. Would you be able to share that with us? Sure, sure. I'd be delighted. Uh, well, by birth, I'm an agrarian. Uh, I'm a farm kid from Illinois and very proud to say so. I was uh, raised on a, on a large uh, row crop uh, farming operation uh, in East Central Illinois. And upon uh, uh, graduating from undergraduate school, uh, I decided I would uh, give banking a go. And as a result, I've uh, stuck with it since. And in fact, one of the delightful things is that the banking industry uh, started out by paying me where my father decided that uh, it would be a privilege for him not to to pay. So uh, I've enjoyed uh, being a banker for over 35 years and specifically in the food, ag, and beverage sector. Yeah, and I think that vantage point really gives you a unique kind of viewpoint. You know, a lot of people come on the show and say, hey, you know, we try to follow from farm to fork, and that's something the Food Institute says. But I think in your case, you know, you have like literal boots on the ground on almost every single part of the food uh, continuum. So it's a very interesting perspective for you to share. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I really do. And I'm fortunate. Uh, I have a, uh, my own personal library. Uh, my, my brother still runs our farming operation and uh, I am uh, uh, invested in it uh, to a certain extent. And so uh, not only personally, but in financially, but uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be part of the farming operation. Uh, when I was growing up, it was a bit of a, uh, a question like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're a farmer. And as a result, it may not have been so popular. I tell you, it's very, very popular. P- people tend to uh, enjoy learning more about how food is uh, is grown and uh, how it goes from, indeed, inside the farm gate to the plate. So it's, uh, it's a real advantage, and uh, I've been blessed to be a part of it. All right, so let's dive right in, John. I know you're someone who speaks frequently with CEOs of the largest food and beverage companies in the U.S. and also abroad. So I'm wondering how you would characterize the mindset of management teams right now as they look towards the rest of 2022. What kind of trends and issues are they concerned with currently? That's a great question. I would have said prior to the geopolitical uh, events and unrest we're, uh, we're all experiencing and seeing uh, daily on our televisions, uh, I would have said companies are optimistic about the prospects for 2022, uh, particularly after having managed through challenging times caused by the pandemic. There now appears to be an element of caution, uh, at least until there's greater visibility associated with the time and the impact the war is likely to have on exports, namely energy, grains, and fertilizer. Prices of commodities will likely remain elevated and supplies will continue to be tight unless other regions of the world are able to make up the shortfall. And of course, weather is another element that could impact supply and price. But that said, uh, I was speaking earlier today with a CFO of a beverage company who uh, remains pretty optimistic. Uh, They've not modified 
their financial forecast and expect an eight to 10% growth in revenue and EBITDA. And, um, they're fully hedged for 2022 on the commodities they use. So they're in a unique position. Yeah, and I think that's kind of interesting because if you look at the media right now, you would probably assume that, you know, obviously inflation is pushing prices up everywhere. And you would expect that a lot of companies would kind of be feeling the pinch with the way the global market seems to be contracting. But you're seeing that companies are already looking towards growth for the rest of the year and kind of seeing it either on par or maybe even better. Is that kind of what you're saying with that one client there? Yeah, I would say with regard to this particular client, um, on par. Uh, but again, uh, the the caution was toward the end of the year of 2022, if uh, the global tensions remain elevated, then you know maybe a, a different uh, conversation we're going to have uh, at this time next year. However, right now they feel pretty good about it. Um, in particular, this company uh, manufactures uh, spirits, and uh, for them, it's a uh, pandemics and, and uh, recessionary uh, times uh, really have a little impact on, on their consumption of their product. Uh, they weather the storm quite well. And um, so they have a bit of a recession resistance uh, platform. And I think that's something we saw with food during the pandemic. It is somewhat recession-proof, obviously. You know, everyone needs to eat something I've said multiple times over the last two years. But one of the things I'm wondering about, you know, we're taking a look at some uh, products and some companies right now that may not have that same kind of, uh, you know, maybe supply chain like resistance, I guess you could put it. Um, and I'm taking a look at these companies. How are they kind of managing risk? Say if you have a lot of need for wheat and now you're taking a look at a global supply that's probably going to look very different than it did last year. How are these companies that are looking at some of these commodities? How are they trying to manage the risk in the current situation? Well, they're employing a very uh, dynamic and robust uh, management process. They, uh, they, they've seen volatility in the past. Maybe not to the quite extent that we're seeing today, but yes, they have seen volatility in pricing of commodities and tight supplies. So I think that experience is carrying them through um, their, the current situation. Uh, now, you know, again, weather uh, could come into play and, and that could uh, impact uh, supply, but really uh, they're well prepared for the volatility. Um, and not only are they prepared for tight supply, but they're also prepared better for tight labor uh, shortages and, and, and uh, issues associated with such. So um, I think the overall, the, the, these companies are, are well positioned to uh, weather the storm, um, but much will be told about uh, the future uh, when we know a little bit more about the length of this war and how deep of an impact it actually has caused. All right. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the U.S. consumer. And one of the things that the Food Institute's really tracked over the last two years, basically since the start of the pandemic, but I think some of the roots go even further back than that. But we've seen this real increased attention on health and wellness. And in particular, we've seen large CPG companies starting to make some dramatic shifts towards healthier ingredients, trying new functional products out and acquisitions of leading better for you brands. And some of those leading better for you brands, like I said, were already established before the pandemic, but we're starting this trend there. So I'm wondering, what do you see with this health and wellness, you know, kind of change in the consumer? Do you think it's a structural change? Do you think it's temporary because of the pandemic? How do you see this new focus on health and wellness? I really think it's structural. Um, consumers are wanting more better for you choices. Uh, and this doesn't appear to be going away. The pandemic seems to have contributed in part to this change. And so I, I think it's embraced. And I think it's evident supported in large part by the large CPGs pivoting into 
the better for you products, uh, the plant-based products. Uh, they're investing more. They're looking for product innovation, um, and they're looking to uh, you know cater to the consumer that's actually demanding it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about those CPG companies. You know, some might argue they were some of the last companies to the table for this health and wellness trend. You know, a lot of the startup brands were kind of going after this, and now we're seeing larger CPGs making collaborations, you know, on the plant-based side. We recently saw Kraft Heinz partner with Notco and we saw Beyond Meat and PepsiCo last year kind of make these, uh, you know, joint ventures focusing on plant-based products. But what other kind of trends are we seeing with CPG companies as they kind of tackle this health and wellness, uh, you know, kind of space? Well, they're, they're looking to employ cleaner labels for sure. Consumers are demanding it. Uh, they're looking for non-GMO ingredients, gluten-free products will continue to be uh, in demand. And so it's a, kind of an introduction of additional plant-based and cultured proteins that are on trend at the moment. Uh, and, and, you know, one could argue that some of the plant-based uh, proteins, uh, alternative proteins out there are high in sodium. But what I would say is the, uh, you know, the, the efforts are being made to reduce the sodium. And, you know, and some consumers buy the offerings based on the impact animal protein has had on the environment rather than on the health and wellness benefits. But the adjacency to that decision is that there is less methane being emitted and therefore the alternative proteins are better for the environment and in turn better for one's health. And I've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but I made the decision this year to become a vegetarian and I've tried it in the past. And I think one of the things you see now is that there's a proliferation of options if you're looking for one of these plant-based meats. So I'm finding that to be really helpful. But to your point, there does seem to be a little confusion on the health aspects here from my research. You know, they do seem to be high in sodium, might be a little bit lower in cholesterol, but I think a lot of consumers look at this and say, hey, this is a healthier choice. But to your point, it seems that the environmental aspects are some of the places where like the biggest gains can be seen. I think. Is that kind of what you're seeing too? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's, 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 uh, it's meaningful and uh, consumer behavior is changing and they're driving the change as well. And uh, uh, for CPGs to offer, you know, products that are uh, and offerings that are more uh, attractive and, and certainly better for you and better for the environment. So it's a, it's something that all companies are having to uh, address and, and subscribe to because, you know, the consumer is not likely going to change. Now, we don't believe that uh, plant-based protein is ever going to really fully disrupt the animal protein sector, but um, people are, are embracing it. I think the product is a better product today than it was a year ago. Uh, textures are there, flavors are there, they're improving them uh, uh, daily seemingly. And so uh, with that, those improvements, consumers will begin to pivot more uh, of that type of offering into their daily diet than, you know, otherwise. So I think it's here to stay. Um, and again, um, consumers are driving it. Investors, investors are really driving it. And let's take a step back from just the U.S. consumer. Are there any global health trends you see that might be coming to the United States in the next couple of years? Anything that's kind of on the periphery that might impact food, you know, basically at home here in the U.S. coming up? You know, I really don't. I think we're, it's a very global economy anymore and, and uh, all consumers are behaving in, in large part the same. And so as a result, CBGs, whether they're uh, based in, in Europe or, or Latin America or the Far East or in the US, we're, they're all um, kind of performing in uh, the same and, and trying to get to the consumer quickly. So whoever gets to the uh, finish line first seems to, to win uh, the trend. And so 
yeah, I, I, uh, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of companies around the globe, uh, food companies around the globe, beverage companies around the globe, uh, incorporating the same sort of practices as we we're seeing here in the U.S. So once again, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. We're now looking at the end of a lot of mask mandates and even vaccine, vaccination requirements for food service across the nation. Uh, I know New York and New Jersey kind of did that right here in my hometown, uh, you know, this week, right? So what we're looking at right now is the opening of food service in a major way. And one of the trends we saw for food service during the pandemic was leveraging e-commerce, AI, robotics, technology, you name it, to try to change so that they could offer, you know, that restaurant experience to diners who may not even be allowed to enter the premises. Uh, one of the things we did see, though, was that a lot of independent restaurants really you know, struggled with either the adoption of technology, you know, having to contend with higher labor costs, uh, increasing prices in general. So I think just overall, what are your observations for the QR, sorry, the QSR industry? And what are you seeing for food service right now as we're kind of reopening again in the United States? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, it's unfortunate that many of the independent restaurants uh, had to close during the pandemic or due to the pandemic. Um, those restaurants were not only a business, but a lifestyle for the owner operators and patrons. But for the QSR uh, operators, you know, they managed to the pandemic challenges very well. And in part, uh, uh, they were able to serve their customers in large part through the uh, through drive throughs And pre-pandemic, nearly 60 to 70% of uh, QSR revenues was generated through drive throughs were it not for the drive-throughs, many QSR franchisees would have had a difficult time staying open, and uh, so you know they they were the benefits uh, beneficiaries, I should say, of of uh, their structure. I, I see the QSRs continuing to uh, to be uh, very popular, uh, especially if we're going to continue to experience some food inflation people will tend to trade down a little bit in their uh, buying behavior. So QSRs uh, fit that, uh, that demand, that mindset quite well. Um, but, you know, QSRs have to have good supply uh, relationships as well. So, um, and they prove that they had them throughout the pandemic and they'll continue to, uh, to manage those supply relationships quite well. And uh, QSRs, I think for the future will change a little bit. We're seeing Wendy's, uh, you know, make a change or a, a growth change, I should say, into the introduction of ghost kitchens. Uh, other QSRs are doing much of the same. They're expanding globally. Uh, demand is there. They have buying power to keep uh, some of the price uh, prices in check. So I think the future of the QSRs is quite bright. Um, now, I think the incorporation and utilization of drive-throughs will continue to be uh, top of mind. I think the the uh, dining uh, layout or footprint of a dining facility will be less. And with those new uh, images and new restaurants, They'll have a dedicated uh, pickup window, if you will, for, for mobile uh, ordering and mobile apps, more mobile ordering will continue to be um, uh, on trend. And, you know, it's, uh, it's what we're going to see, I think, going forward. And, and frankly, it could be a much cheaper uh, or more affordable way of building a restaurant. Less dining, less dead space, more revenue through drive throughs and um, you know, with with those uh, those changes in mind and and being implemented, I think uh, QSRs will continue to prosper. 
I'd like to jump back into the drive-through aspect because, you know, during the pandemic, the Food Institute tracked this. We kind of looked at what the restaurant of the future is going to look like. We saw Taco Bell put out a design that almost looks like a bank with two drive-through lanes. We saw Chipotle really expand into the Chipotle aspect. And I think in the last week, we also saw that Applebee's is going to be expanding their uh, drive-through capabilities at certain locations. So to me, it's kind of interesting. You know, when we take a look at ideas about what the ideal model for the restaurant of the future is, to me, it's almost a hybrid model that incorporates you know, at, to your point, you have to have good delivery services or pickup services. You want convenient access if that's a drive-through or not. Maybe it's curbside pickup, depending on your location. But you also need to make sure that you have at least a little bit, I think, of experience for people when they want to come into the restaurant, because I do think there's a lot of pent-up demand for that. So with all of my ideas about the restaurant of the future out there, what are you seeing? What do you think this ideal model will be? Is it a hybrid one or are there going to be, you know, individualized concepts depending on what kind of cuisine and, you know, experience you're trying to offer? Yeah, maybe a little bit of both, but you know, for the QSR space, as uh, as indicated earlier, it really will be um, one of, of emphasis on the drive-through because, again, were it not for those drive-throughs, some of those QSRs would have struggled. Uh, but you know, they were able to to meet the needs and the demands of the consumers because consumers were tired of staying inside, and here's one way to you know get a little bit of enjoyment uh, out of dining out, but not really. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's one that they can get in their car, go through, pick up their order, and certainly either sit and try, sit in the parking lot or go home and sit in their home to enjoy uh, the the order. But um, yeah, I think uh, we're going to see more uh, drive-throughs and and again, pickup windows. Loyalty programs are very very popular. They're going to continue to grow as well because you know the QSRs want the consistency. They want to uh, they want their their consumer, their their client, their customer to return, and so. They're going to incentivize them through a loyalty program more than they have in the past. And I think that loyalty program will probably speak to inflation going forward this year. I think you will see increased loyalty program usage as people are looking for deals. They're looking for a way, as you said earlier, to try to feed their family on what is a weaker dollar. Well, maybe not a weaker dollar, but you know, their dollar's not going as far as it was this time last year. Let's put it that way. So with inflation hitting every part of the U.S. economy from CPGs to QSRs, how do you think these brands are going to contend, not only in the U.S., but across the globe, contending with these rising prices? Are they going to, you know, basically use that purchasing power, as you alluded to earlier, or are there other techniques they can use to try to maintain pricing and, most importantly, maintain consumer usage? Well, they're doing everything they can to keep pricing uh, in check. But, you know, there comes a point in time where they can no longer sustain uh, the the costs associated with the rising inputs. So they're going to have to pass it on, but they're doing so in a many, very meaningful way, um, and because they, they, they want to retain their their customer, they don't want to uh, lose the customer to competition or to just dining at home. And so they're they're doing everything they can to keep the cost in check. Um, they're employing other types of uh, offerings. In some cases, robotics um, are are being introduced. Now, in a QSR situation, perhaps that's a little bit more challenging than a production facility, but uh, we've seen um, one QSR employ robotics uh, in the kitchen to, to fry uh, hamburgers. So, you know, they're, they're dealing with uh, everything that's uh, before them today to retain and gain uh, customer loyalty. And, and I, I, I truly believe that, you know, they're, they're holding the cost down, they're buying Purchasing power is very, very uh, critical. And, and uh, with the volumes in which they purchase worldwide, 
um, you know, the, they do have an advantage over the independent operator. What about for companies who are looking for managing operational product prices in this inflationary environment? What kind of advice could you provide maybe a smaller company that's in this space that doesn't have that purchasing power? What can they do? Well, that's that's a that's a difficult question to to answer. I you know, an active, robust uh, risk management program has is very very critical. And also, whether they're large or small, I think having great relations with the suppliers is also key. Um, labor is an issue. Labor will be an issue, and so perhaps they have to uh, they'll have to reduce the offerings on the menu to um, to you know, have enough uh, uh, working capital available to to accommodate a, a smaller menu yet retain at the same time their clientele. So it's 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 a challenge. It'll be a challenge, but um, you know, with time we'll know more, and with time hopefully inflation will uh, will recede a bit, and uh, we'll be back to a bit more normal times than what we're currently experiencing, and we're likely to experience uh, in the days uh, and months ahead. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, John, is just the state of agricultural chemicals and fertilizers. You know, they were making news before the Russia-Ukraine conflict began. And I know, at least in the media reports I've read, that, you know, those two regions, not only are they making a serious amount of wheat and grains, they're also relatively important on the global market for these different products. And like I said, we were already seeing some news about shortages ahead of this conflict. So I'm wondering what the situation is currently for these materials. And are you seeing any kind of supply issues that are going to impact U.S. farmers this year? Well, there certainly could be an impact, uh, but uh, many of the farmers uh, in the U.S. Uh, likely uh, locked in pricing uh, last fall or early winter for, for many of their inputs. But, you know, Russia and Belarus make up 40 percent of the global potash export market, and while Russia alone makes up 22% of the ammonia export market, 14% of the uh, urea export market, and 14% of the monoammonium export market. So uh, for those countries and growers within those countries that rely heavily on uh, exports out of Russia and Belarus, they're gonna be challenged. Um, So, and I would say specifically Brazil, is probably going to be impacted a bit more than say the US farmer would because they rely more heavily on um, fertilizer from Russia and Belarus than, than the US does. So John, I think one of the last things I want to talk to you about today is just how financing conditions have changed over the last 12 months. We've seen a lot of market disruptions over the last 24 months, give or take. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, just over the last two years, maybe last year, what have you seen has changed? What do you expect in 2022 when you talk about financing conditions with clients and, you know, your coworkers? What are you guys seeing? Well, I, what I would say is banks are well positioned to, to support um, the growth and of, of, of companies in the food and beverage space. Um, but in t- 2021, you know, we saw a tremendous amount of acquisition and general corporate financing. Uh, publicly traded companies took advantage of attractive terms uh, in the fixed income markets to help facilitate growth and refinance higher price debt. Additionally, uh, banks, uh, you know, availed their balance sheet to provide bridge financing to capital markets and working capital finance consistent with typical market terms conditions. But what we also saw in, uh, in 21, and we'll see more in 22 and beyond is the increase in sustainability linked loans and green bonds, which could result in a lower cost of capital uh, 
in the event certain KPIs are met during the tenor of the debt obligation. You know, it's very clear that corporations worldwide have embraced the need to combat climate change by employing cleaner and more sustainable marketing uh, manufacturing practices. And furthermore, consumers and investors are requesting it. So I think for 2022, we're going to see more of that. Um, you know, again, I hate to repeat myself, but I think uh, the impact that uh, we're, we're currently seeing and the results that we're seeing as a result of tensions between Russia and Ukraine may alter some of the growth and some of the aspiration and some of the uh, willingness to support growth. But I think the growth uh, aspirations will remain. It's a matter of when they'll be reemployed and, and implemented. All right. Perfect. So definitely a lot of ground that we covered today, but I do want to say thank you, John, for joining us on the Food Institute podcast. I just wanted to see, you know, the last question I have for you, any other trends for 2022, we should keep an eye on here on the Food Institute podcast. You know, I can't think of any, Chris. Um, I, uh, I, I just think that there's, there's, uh, there's a real need for nutrition and, and changes in nutrition, uh, innovation, food safety, food security, um, is very top of mind within the C-suites. Um, and uh, I know they're working diligently to, to meet the demands uh, at a price point and taste and texture that the consumers demand. All right, perfect. We'll keep a look on health and wellness for the rest of the year. I want to thank you again, John. Thanks for stopping by and spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. All right, that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. I want to thank John again for his time and also our sponsor, HSBC Bank USA NA. HSBC Bank USA National Association serves customers through wealth, personal banking, commercial banking, private banking, and global banking and market segments. As of the close of business on December 31st, 2021, it operated bank branches in California, Washington, D.C., Florida, New Jersey, New York, Virginia, and Washington. HSBC Bank USA NA is the principal subsidiary of HSBC USA Inc., a wholly owned subsidiary of HSBC North America Holdings Inc. In the United States, deposit products are offered by HSBC Bank USA NA, member FDIC, investment and brokerage services are provided through HSBC Securities USA Inc., and insurance products are provided through HSBC Insurance Agency USA Inc. For more information, please visit www.business.us.hsbc.com. And as always, you can follow a link in the description of this episode to get directly to that website. If you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If not, we'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Mm-hmm.